Welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris. How's everybody going? Uh, no co-host again for this episode. Uh, flying solo once again. Um, but hopefully we'll have Lee back um, in the coming weeks. There's there's a couple in particular I'm really uh, hoping to get her on board for. Um, yeah, mainly Pickpocket, just based on having seen... Um, <laughs> Al Hazard, Balthazar together a couple of, like, many months ago. I'm really intrigued to see what she thinks of some more Brasson, but we'll wait and see uh, how that all shakes out in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, how, you, how have you been? How, how you all going? It, it, it's been a minute. <laughs> I think uh, it's been, God, well over a month, month and a half now, since I've sat down to record a proper episode uh, looking at one of the films in the collection. Um, really got sidetracked by Miff there for about three and a half weeks. Um, and then I just needed a bit of a break. I, I was burnt out. I was really, really fucking tired from working full time and then going and seeing on average three movies a day at the cinema. Um, so the last thing I kind of wanted to do at that point was to sit down and by myself and try and discuss and break down more movies. So I, uh, you know, took a took a week or two off, but I am back and raring to go uh, with this week's film, uh, Ugetsu. But before we get into that, I wanted to um, just chat about some other stuff. Like, why not? Uh, wh- what have I seen recently that's, um, you know, non-criterion films that have been interesting or kind of piqued my interest? Um... Kind of post-MIF, I was able to catch up on quite a few little odds and ends. Um, I finally managed to sit down and see Hit the Road. Um, This is one that I had a ticket to last year at the film festival, and obviously that got cancelled, but I was able to finally catch up and watch it now. Um, It's the new Iranian film by uh, Panar Panahi, uh, Jafar Panahi's son, actually. Um, Yeah, really feel... Sorry for him at the moment, but uh, all that aside, um, I am a huge fan of Iranian cinema. I am actually, uh, listeners, long-time listeners might know that I actually wrote a university paper on Iranian cinema, in particular the films of Kiristami and uh, Panahi, so anything uh, remotely connected to Iranian cinema or having to do with those guys, I am all on board for, and I fucking loved this film. Um, I was not expecting it to be as much of a comedy as it was. Um, holy shit, the performances are amazing. Um, it's got that kind of beautiful, slowly creeping melancholy that you get from a lot of Panahi's fil- previous films. Um, but at the same time, it's just coated with this thick, juicy layer of amazing comedic performances and kind of this biting kind of witticism of this family. And it, it's them on this road trip and you sort of don't, and it's peppered throughout the clues as to why they're on this road trip and what's going Going on, and as it's like we're really kind of from the perspective of the smaller child, so we don't really have that much information until towards the end of the film. And as it's just slowly unfolding, what's happening the the kind of the the kind of biting satire of the, the of like the not satire the the biting kind of comedy and the way that this family interact together becomes a lot clearer as to why that's the case. And I just really dug it. It was right up my alley. You know, a brisk sort of 90 minutes of intense character film. Um, I I loved it. I I cannot recommend Hit the Road enough if you can get a chance to see it. Um, What else did I check out? I finally watched 3 O'Clock High. Uh, that, that randomly, uh, from 1987, the Phil Janelle film. Um, I had known about Phil Janelle's work um, mainly through working with the band U2. Um, he kind of did most of the early concert movies and things, and sort of that's really about all that I sort of knew him from. I hadn't really dived into his filmography. Um, but this was one of those kind of teen, 80s teen high school movies that I'd always always heard about and had always kind of been on my list to go and check out. And just at home one night last week, I was just like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to like just need something short, quick and, you know, you know, funny and nice. So I put this on. 
kind of expecting a kind of John Hughesy-esque kind of movie. Uh, the, the plot, for those that don't know, it's this um, kind of nerdy kid who gets um, in an altercation with the new kid at school. Um, he's supposed to write an article, or a kind of breakdown, a character, like, you know, a breakdown of him for the new, an introduction piece uh, for the school newspaper. And the dude does not like anyone knowing anything about him. And they get into an altercation. And at three o'clock, he, uh, they're going to fight in the parking lot. So there's where the sort of three o'clock high, the high noon kind of reference of it all comes in. But, and so then it's, you know, the whole rest of the day of him trying to escape or think of ways to get out of fighting the bully. Um, so based off that synopsis, you kind of expect it to be a bit of a John Hughesy kind of light, um, you know, lighter affair of a teen movie. Um, interestingly enough, I found out while I was looking into it while I was watching it, um, it's a film. It was produced by Steven Spielberg, and he actually took his name off the film. He just didn't want to kind of you know. It was around this time in the mid to late 80s where his name was on a lot of things as a producer, and it was that Steven Spielberg Presents, and he uh, thought that Phil had such a strong vision that he didn't want to detract from that, so he went uncredited uncredited as a producer on this film. But uh, apparently when he saw uh, the first cut of the film, he, he notoriously said, what the fuck, I was expecting John Hughes and you gave me Martin Scorsese. Um, <laughs> you made a Scorsese film because apparently uh, right before the film like went into production uh, Phil Jeanneau had watched uh, After Hours and was insanely influenced by that film and it shows watching 3 O'Clock High um, I was absolutely floored by how kinetic and visual this film is it really feels like you're watching a teenage version of After Hours or like, you know, if Scorsese was to try and make a, uh, you know, a teen movie about bullying. <laughs> um, it, it's really full on with its like really like coked out visuals, <laughs> that real 80s Scorsese style. So um, if you're looking for something that's like hyper visual, like I, I guess as well, like I'll say, I'll give a shout out to another teen filmmaker that I really loved. I, it was... Not quite in the same vein, but kind of gave me the feels of something like a savage, savage Steve Holland. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of Better Off Dead, that uh, John Cusack movie. So it's sort of in that similar vein, but kind of more, more coked out, I would say. And I got really put off actually uh, watching Three O'clock High because uh, the whole opening thing is uh, him like he's late to school, like so he's got a you know Marty McFly style, like quickly get there and things. And it's very clearly like California. And then he arrives at his school and it's in the middle of the fucking mountains in Utah. And it was really confusing for me and kind of took me out of it a bit. But apart from that, it's it's really fun. And uh, I would recommend checking out that old one. And just before we uh, we move into the episode, I just want to shout out as well. The last film that I watched... Um, and the reason I'm bringing this one up actually is because it, it's so interesting that I kind of think it might inform where we go with our next Patreon episode um, at the beginning of next uh, for next month um, because I watched Robert Zemeckis's Pinocchio holy shit um, I I don't know what to say <laughs> I don't I think it is it's now safe to say that Robert Zemeckis is probably one of, if not the filmmaker, that has the biggest discrepancy between creating one of the greatest or some of the best films ever and creating one of the worst. Um, I was utterly confounded by this film, and it, it is truly one of the worst things I've watched in a very, very long time, um, to the point that, like, it... it I like... Yeah, there's always, you know, the Paul Shear, uh, June Day and Raphael and Jason Manzoukas podcast, How Did This Get Made? Literally, how did this get made? And more importantly, why did this get made? It's it, sort of every creative and artistic decision that went into this film seems to have no rational thought behind it. Um, it it's, 
like I love watching bad films. I I love bad films like um, uh, Champagne and Bullet, um, uh, Low Blow, Miami Connection, all of these wonderful, absolutely B grade films, like C grade, D grade films that you know Vinegar Syndrome and all these wonderful places are putting out. Um, love all of that stuff. Uh, this does not fall into this category. This isn't like even in the same like. If you were to try and compare it to a similar kind of absolutely baffling film recently, like Cats, like I fucking love Cats. Cats is one of the most entertaining films you will watch, uh, especially if you're with a big group of people who have never seen it before. That is a big budget clusterfuck that is utterly captivating and confusing and confounding and hilarious. Pinocchio is none of those things. It, it is a truly bad film where it's not even fun to watch. It, it's, it is a slog and it is upsetting <laughs> and confusing and I, I really, really, really want to sit down with Lee and discuss uh, what the fuck happened to Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I guess that'll, I mean, that's a a couple of recommendations and a a harsh warning, I guess, against a certain film. But uh, on that note, I think it's probably about time that we jump into this week's Criterion film, which is Kenji Mizuguchi's 1953 film, Ugetsu. By the time he made Ugetsu, Kenji Mizuguchi was already an elder statesman of Japanese cinema, fiercely revered by Akira Kurosawa and other directors of of a younger generation. And with this exquisite ghost story, a fatalistic wartime tragedy derived from the stories by Akanari Ueda and Guy Dumasapant, he created a touchstone of his art, his long takes and sweeping cameras guiding the viewer through a delirious narrative about two villagers whose pursuit of fame and fortune leads them astray from their loyal wives. Moving between the terrestrial and otherworldly, Ugetsu reveals essential truths about the ravages of war, the plight of women, and the pride of men. Alright, uh, so this is an interesting one. Um, it's obviously a film that is uh, very popular and very well known in the history of world cinema, um, but it's also uh, one that I had never seen before. Uh, always kind of had heard about it, but never had actually sat down to watch it. Uh, similarly, I have never seen any Kenji uh, Mizuguchi films before. This is my first outing into uh, his world, um, and it's uh, definitely an interesting one, and I, I know one that we're going to be revisiting quite a bit later on in the collection. Um, yeah, so I had no real idea what to expect with this one, um, other than it's supposed to be very good and uh, well-regarded. Um, I did do the little bit of research kind of beforehand. I'm getting So, unfortunately, I mean, spo- obviously, spoiler alert if you're listening to this podcast, um, I did know about the kind of otherworldly ghostly twist, that comes towards, uh, you know, the, the back half of the film. And it's one where I kind of wish I didn't. Um, I mean, the Criterion synopsis kind of alludes to it briefly there with the whole otherworldliness. But the fact that I actually knew that this was going to be a flat-out ghost story at some point kind of, like, flavoured my viewing of it, I guess. I, I spent a lot of the time sort of not allowing myself to get caught up into the world of like the the civil war time kind of plight and the interesting development of the characters and instead kind of was sitting there waiting to be like isn't this supposed to be a ghost story when's that unfolding um so i kind of wish i hadn't known about that going in and just kind of had that surprise kind of happen to me like it happens to Genjuro himself I guess that would have been really kind of engaging especially at that point in the story I would have just been like what the fuck what the fuck she is a ghost I would not have expected that because it is that whole thing of you know fortune like you know you know him being corrupted by power and fortune and things and then you know forgetting that as well we'll get we'll get into it we'll get into it (laughs) um but yeah so what is the basic synopsis of this film beyond that kind of very lofty 
description that the Criterion box gave us. Um, so yeah, it is really essentially the story of uh, two farmers in particular. Uh, that's Genjuro and Tobei. Um, Genjuro is a farmer who uh, lives with his wife Miyagi and young son. And um, as a side gig, uh, as a farmer, he does wonderful pottery. And uh, Tobey is another sort of farmer, kind of lazy dude that's around in the village who's been helping him out with the pottery work. Um, but as, a, as the civil war is breaking out around them and they're hearing tales of uh, other villages nearby sort of being ravaged and, um, you know, people having to go on the run, um, Genjuro thinks it's a good idea to sort of... Uh, make a little bit of a quick buck while they can. And so um, the four of them, um, both uh, Genjuro, Tobei, Miyagi, his wife, and then um, what the fuck is Tobei's wife's name again? Uh, Nagahama. That's right. Uh, the four of them kind of set out on this plan of like, all right, we're going to make a shitload of pottery, and then we need, we're going to try and evade the the bandits and the civil war and the armies that's going on around us, and escape out to the town and sell all these pots, make a huge profit, and then be able to sustain ourselves uh, throughout the war. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting backdrop for a story, and you're like instantly popping into your head. You're like, all right, I know where this is going to going to kind of go i mean early on the one of the elders in the village makes a kind of comment to miyagi that um what genjuro is doing is foolhardy the the idea that um i forget what the exact line is it's it's something along the lines of um making the quick buck now isn't going to necessarily sustain you it's that whole you know the squirrel like saving the nuts for, (laughs) for winter kind of thing it's all like you know is that the right analogy? I forget how that one goes. You know, you know the one about like squandering your stuff early now instead of being able to wait it out throughout you know the long hard winter. That's kind of what this guy's getting at. Is if Genjuro works, you know, blows his load now with all of his pottery, he's then will that necessarily bring him what he is wanting? Um, so, spoiler alert: this is probably going to be a morality tale. <laughs> um, so they do this big final cook-up of all their pottery and they decide to, that they're going to not risk uh, venturing out. Well, basically, the, their village is actually raided by um, by soldiers and they manage to, you know, escape with the rest of the townsfolk. And But it is that niggling thing in the back of his head of, I, I need to make sure the kiln's still going in case, the, like, you know, I've put in all this effort for this pottery. This is our chance to make the cash. What am I going to do? And so full-heartedly, Genjiro sneaks back down to the village um, thankfully, the uh, twofold, the soldiers have left and the kiln didn't go out or the kiln went out, but the pottery managed to be finished in time. So they thankfully have all of their wares that they're able to sell and they decide, obviously, we want to avoid the roads to uh, avoid all the armies. So they decide to set sail and go via lake, uh, head down to this different town where they think they can get even more money. But it's on the lake that they actually stumble across. Um, we're just going to flat out call him the Harbinger. <laughs> um, it is. A, they initially think it's a ghost ship. It is a. It's a small boat that um, comes out of nowhere in this thick, dense fog. It's super eerie and gorgeously shot. And he basically, uh, there is one man left alive on that boat, and he he warns them to look out for pirates. And you know, if if they're caught, they're gonna kill the men, take all their wares, rape the women. Just just no good, very bad. Don't do. Um, so they kind of hatch the idea of, no, fuck this. We're not gonna do this anymore. Uh, we're gonna take the women and the kids back to land, and then we're gonna go off alone, um, being very careful. And uh, there we go. So it's the men kind of abandoning the women to kind of, you know, that whole thing of, we'll be back in a week, it's fine, it's fine. And you're like, it's not It's not going to be fine. What are you talking about? Um, so Genjuro and Tobey go to the village, selling their wares. Uh, oh, I've, I've, how have I gotten this far into the synopsis without even actually talking about the fact that Tobey has no real interest in pottery? All he gives a shit about is he wants to become a samurai. Um, not necessarily for, uh, you know, the actual elements that come along with being a samurai, like, you know, nobility and, um, you know, not, it's, it's more the idea of self-importance and self-worth and, uh, being able to be kind of a, a, a symbol for him and his wife and his, his wife will then look at him and be like, man, you're a real man now. (laughs) It's, it's really foolhardy idea. And so multiple times he's trying to become a samurai and it just does not 
work. Everyone just laughs at him. He's like, you're a filthy bum. Get out of here. Get out of here. Um, so that's sort of his... Un- while we've got Genjiro's kind of underlying kind of narrative drive is the idea of wanting to, you know, make the quick buck, uh, make the money, be able to uh, supply for not only himself and his family, but get the better life. And Tobey's kind of trying to seek that similar thing but not necessarily through active construction and detailed art and, you know, creating something himself, but rather just kind of reaping the glory of something that's already been instilled within a station in life, just kind of trying to achieve that station without the actual hard work. So it's kind of getting two different versions of ultimately the same goal, but presented by two men in two kind of different pursuits of like, you know, they're taking the two roads to get to the same path, the same destination, I should say. Um, but anyway, while Genjuro is off selling the pottery, he, uh, encounters this woman, uh, Lady Wakasa, who is, um, invite, wants to buy all of his pottery, invites him up to the castle and things, uh, where she lives with her handmaiden. Um, at, at this point as well, Tobe and Genjuro kind of split paths. Like, Genjuro goes up to visit, uh, Wakasa up at her castle, and, uh, Tobe ends up going off in his path to try and become a samurai, uh, which ultimately ends up happening. I'm just quickly going to go to Tobe for the time being, because he's he's the B story, we'll say. I mean, no offense, but you're a B story, Tobe. Uh, he witnesses a general getting his head uh, cut off um, as an act of kind of, um, not defeat, but what do you call it when you're... Surrender, that's the word. Uh, as an act of sort of surrender, and then Tobe takes advantage, picks up the severed head, takes it to the local lord and is like, hey, I did this. And so because of that, he's able to make himself um, move up into the station of samurai. Um, so that's kind of his thing. He's got his armor. He's got his, you know, th- his his station now. And he goes off uh, about his uh, kind of, you know, to his fame and glory where he ends up reconnecting with Higami, who has in the interim um, been raped uh, by a lot of soldiers and things and now has found herself working in a brothel as a comfort woman, which is where Tobe encounters her again. Um, and that whole, apparently this was where... Um, Mizuguchi originally fought with the studio, despite the fact that he was promised uh, full creative control. The original story um, actually ended uh, really bleakly there, <laughs> um, with whereas uh, in the actual film, it's no, we're gonna, I'm gonna rescue you out of this life, and then we're gonna move on and live happily ever after, forgetting that you ever worked as a prostitute. Um, but yeah, I- interesting. But Genjuro is really where the interesting shit happens. He he ends up kind of getting seduced by Lady Wakasa, and it's really interesting in the way that it all kind of unfolds. It's you would expect it to be, um, you know, this man who is constantly seeking, and his goal currently is to have wealth and be able to move beyond his current station in life. He he, when he finally finds himself in an environment where he's surrounded by that exactly what he wants this opulence this beautiful woman and this beautiful house and all of this you know gorgeous silk kimonos and things it's you you would expect that to be the thing that kind of seduces him into this life but instead it's her complimenting his pottery it's that kind of simple gesture and that simple art of her not necessarily complimenting him as a man but complimenting what he creates and the work and the craftsmanship of what he does that's what seduces him and the two of them end up sort of getting into this uh, kind of whirlwind romance where it, it's kind of a little bit unclear whether Genjuro is sort of under a spell or if he's kind of willingly going along with this. I like to think that it's really kind of he's caught up in this kind of intoxicated by this, this what's happening to him um, because he, he so clearly loves Miyagi and his son and his, his, his life back at home. He's just wanting to make it better if that makes sense um but yeah so it basically turns out that lady wakasa is dead uh there is no castle uh she is a ghost or more more so a demon who has pretty much seduced and uh cast a spell on genjiro she was a woman who had died this uh, wealthy woman noble woman who had died without knowing love so now she's a demon come back on this earth until she's able to find love and so with the help of a priest uh genjiro is able to exercise her by like writing in a very Qui-Don-esque way, kind of writing uh, Buddhist terms all over his body and things and expelling uh, her and find and then finds himself kind of 
awoken back up into a real the reality that he came from and uh runs back home uh in an attempt to kind of reconnect with Miyagi and his son and things are finding that in the interim while he's been gone that Miyagi has in fact died and uh so life moves on with Genjiro and his son uh back becoming a farmer having kind of gone through this whirlwind adventure in an attempt to better their station but instead finding themselves right back where they started wow what do we do now <laughs> it, it's it's an interesting movie i really dug it i really really did i understand completely why this is a film that is so well regarded and loved by so many people um in particular in its history of japanese cinema and world cinema um Basically, like, as I said, I, I mean, I've just breezed whirlwindly through the actual synopsis and what happens in the film, um, just to kind of bring anyone up to speed. But yeah, like I said, myself, I, I'd never, I'd never seen this before. I'd never seen any Mizuguchi films before. So I really did not know what to expect. And it, it's, it is such an assured filmmaking style. I mean, it, it should be noted that this film uh, was made, is one of, made only a few years before his death. So this is a sort of him at the, in his 60s towards the end of his life and his career. So he really has established everything, uh, all of his filmmaking tools. But all of that, like putting that aside, it is such a, a specific vision and a specific style um, of filmmaking that you can't help but get yourself kind of caught up in um, and really connect with and flo- and just kind of go along with his storytelling. It's the beautiful, beautiful cinematography. Um, I just want to shout out a couple of the shots. There's a tracking shot um, basically when Genjuro is being seduced by Lady Wakasa where they're kind of bathing together in a hot spring and it kind of then pans across and this is at night and it, it, it's a pan that transitions from night to day in the in the camera move we go from them in the hot springs at night panning across under the grass which then transitions into daytime and then we pan back up to find them kind of picnicking and frolicking in the grass by the river together gorgeous stuff and it's this beautiful vistas as well um similarly when genjuro arrives back home after he's fled lady wakasa there's when he first gets back to his hut um looking for miyagi and his son this it's a continual 360 shot that kind of pans around the entirety of the house as he's running around screaming her name trying to find her and there's no one there and after we complete an entire 360 we come back around and there she is sitting there where she wasn't before with a full fire in the pot and making dinner and preparing some sake and stuff for him, knowing that he's going to be coming home. And it's kind of that, these little elements like that where it's the kind of messing with the physical and the metaphysical, the idea that she's clearly not there, yet all of a sudden she appears there. It adds that otherworldly, that ghostly element of that unease that you as a viewer know like, oh shit, she dead. And this is definitely like an apparition kind of doing a final visitation with him and kind of a final goodbye, knowing that he's back home safely. It's really beautiful. And that's also, talking about beauty, like the final shot of the film with uh, Miyagi and Genjuro's young son, like getting the little bit of food and taking it up to her grave and placing it there as a light, as a, as a gift. And then the camera panning up onto this beautiful vista of the farming and the farmland going on. Um, so just basically showing us the audience that nothing has really changed in the ex, like a lot has changed in the internal and the immediacy of these characters' lives, but looking at the grander scale of the world around them, nothing has really changed and life continues to march on. Um, it's fucking fantastic. (laughs) Um, Kazu Miyagawa, uh, the cinematographer said actually in a 1992 interview that, uh, they used a crane for 70% of the film. Uh, the camera's like constantly moving in this thing, whether it's a tracking shot, panning up, down, side to side, it gives the film a real fluid motion and it really helps to translate and kind of get across to the audience, the volatility of the world and the characters that the, sorry, that the characters are finding themselves in. That kind of everything is shifting and constantly moving and you're never able to kind of sit at rest or be at peace. Um, 
Also, I just want to shout out the music as well. Uh, fucking incredible. Um, really, really, really gave me um, flashbacks to some of the music that Coppola used in Apocalypse Now. That kind of chanting and kind of off-key flute. I don't know how you'd do it, like, or what it's called, but, like, in particular, I mean, spoiler alert for Apocalypse Now, but, like, after Clean has died and things, and there's that weird, like, off-key flute music playing, um, yeah, it's, it's, it seems like almost a direct reference and influence and lift from this film, um, yeah, and not to, I need to as well shout out the performances, um, everyone across the board, I, it's, it's incredible stuff. It really is. Like, again, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm just going to say I have facial blindness, but I don't. It's just I'm lazy and I watch a lot of movies. Um, but having not really been familiar with many of these actors before, it's, you know, it, it's incredible stuff where you're like, oh, I understand. Apparently they was, um, in particular, Genjuro and Miyagi, they were huge movie stars in Japan at the time and kind of, uh, Mizuguchi taking them and kind of putting them in this unglamorous kind of role and setting in this type of film really uh, was a bit shocking to audiences at the time. And it they deliver incredibly natural performances. I mean, you, you could see someone so easily with this material going so hammy and so over the top and almost to that kabuki level of theatre performance. Um, but instead, like, the, obviously there are elements and scenes where They've got to go really extreme with their emotions, uh, given, you know, interacting with demons and death and war and all this tragedy. But it still somehow is grounded in an actual reality of, I, I buy that that's how that character would be reacting. Um, incredible performances. It it's, helps anchor the film, like, that could easily, especially in that second half, when the otherworldly and demonic and supernatural elements come into it, could really kind of go, not off the rails, but could veer into a very different direction. It keeps it really grounded into that kind of emotionality that we, the audience, are connected into at that moment. Um, yeah, so as I've said a couple of times, like, I was very unfamiliar with Mizuguchi and his style of filmmaking, so I did my research. I spent a little bit of time kind of diving into, like, Wikipedia, um, essays about Ugutsu and, um, uh, Mizuguchi and his film and his work and his process, and, um, basically thought I'd prepare, I'd prepared a little bit of history and context, I guess, to kind of, which I found really helped me, uh, understand and appreciate the film a little bit better. Um, so yeah, by the time Mizuguchi got around to making the film, um, he had already perfectly honed his filmmaking style and his signatures, uh, which he called flowing scroll. Uh, so basically, uh, which he would tell his cinematographers, he wants the film and the visuals to unfold like a scroll, a flowing scroll that would kind of just slowly unravel in front of the audience. And he also had become really famous for one shot, one scene, which he called it, uh, which would use, uh, which would use him, uh, allow him to do an individual scene and let it flow out uh, during all of these uh, elaborate one takes that he would do. Um, sort of becoming like a, a technique that we'd later see people like Spielberg absolutely master, where it's these these like subtly long individual scenes played out in one shot where basically there's movement of both the camera and the actors within the frame that you don't it creating multiple compositions within that one shot uh so it's almost like hidden edits you don't even realize that it's this elaborate single take one long shot that's been going on because of the shifting around of the movement of camera and the actors and the framing itself um so he was one of the people that really sort of started pioneering that um uh, he would also have a penchant for keeping the camera really far back, avoiding close-ups, and uh, would constantly try and link the, ca the characters with their environment, uh, which in turn would generate uh, this kind of sense of hypnotic tension and uh, a psychological density within the audience. Um, prior to his final run of films in the 1950s and before his death in 1956, um, he'd kind of fallen out of fashion a little bit. Um, he'd made a very pro-war film uh, in, I want to say, 1941 called The 47 Ronin, 
um, which he kind of had regretted taking part in, being, you know, kind of part of that pro-war propaganda machine. Um, but then post-war, he comes back with a vengeance with the series of films, The Life of Oharu, Ugetsu, uh, Sancho, uh, Sancho the Bailiff, and a bunch of others, um, all of which are in Criterion and that we'll probably be covering in the future. Uh, but for these films, he drew on classical writing and the past. Uh, he was quickly became a master of reinterpreting the national uh, national history of Japan. Uh, in the essay, actually, a good. Ugetsu uh, from the other shore by uh, Philip Lopat. Uh, he compares um, Mizuguchi to the level of Western counterparts like John Ford or uh, Lucino Visconti because of this. That that kind of uh, having that eye for detail, squarely focused on uh, historical details. Uh, Mizuguchi would borrow props, kimono, suits of armors, and things from museums and private collectors to kind of help give this air of authenticity to his films and his projects, and kind of really help solidify. Uh, the time and the place and the environment for the audience. Uh, it was on the, this run of films kind of in that early 50s that Mizuguchi rose to real international fame and attention. Uh, he actually won prizes at the Venice Film Festival three years in a row with Oharu, Ugetsu, and Sancho. Um, I suppose as well, like the, the kind of rise in popularity and kind of um, international fame uh, could be in part due to like the West's uh, newly developed post-war kind of interest in traditional J- uh, Japan and the kind of difference in culture and history. Um, but it's also because Mizuguchi was clearly an incredible artist. Um, his prolific, <laughs> his profile and his personality perfectly fit into that mold of the brilliant, uncompromising auteur. Um, it later kind of came out he's in that kind of same league as a Kubrick or a Fincher where he would demand hundreds of takes uh, until it was absolutely perfect and apparently even in some instances he would actually have his crew move entire sets and even houses a few several feet like to the left or the right just so that the vista was absolutely perfect um megalomaniac I don't know (laughs) we'll call it an auteur Uh, (laughs) There's this brief sentence in uh, Lopet's essay that I found really interesting. Um, He said, Mizuguchi engaged with the past not to recapture nostalgically some lost model of serenity, but if anything, to reveal the opposite. It's a fascinating notion to kind of look at, especially with this type of filmmaking, and Ugetsu as like a prime example of that. Um, So... Mizuguchi and his, and his screenwriter Yoshikata Yodo adapted the script um, from <laughs> adapted the script for the film from two short stories uh, from Ueda's collection uh, called Tales of Moonlight and Rain. Um, they basically kept the majority of the otherworldly imagery, but they completely messed around with the core story elements. Uh, there's a quote from Mizuguchi in his, uh, to his, that he said to his co-writer, uh, complaining, The feeling of wartime must be apparent in the attitude of every character. The violence of war unleashed by those in power on a pretext of national good must overwhelm the common people with suffering, moral and physical. Yet the commoners, even under these conditions, must continue to live and eat. This theme is what I especially want to emphasize here. How should I do it? And I mean, that's just the real question. Uh, did he successfully manage to do it with this film? And I gotta say, pretty much, yeah, he he did. <laughs> uh, the main focus of the film isn't the civil war that's raging. It's the people that it surrounds, and not necessarily in that sense of how the war directly affects them, although it's although that is totally unavoidable, obviously. Uh, it merely seems to act as a backdrop for the story, helping to drive the motivations and the act and the actions for both Genjiro and Tobe. Genjiro, instead of like accepting his life as a humble farmer and potter, he goes out there and seeks some good old-fashioned wartime profiteering. <laughs> Uh, he's he's mass-producing his pottery and trying to sell it in bulk during these difficult times. Um, but, you know, of course, with that comes the inherent risk, and Miyagi, his wife, would prefer that he avoided it all. Um, but as the old adage goes, fortune favors the bold. Uh, Tobe, on the other hand, uh, seems to be spurred on by the war. Like, he, his sense of wanting to move past his station 
is more so a direct result of what the people he's seeing around him, these these soldiers and these samurai. It's it's that kind of nobility, and it's a direct result of that. Um, his idea of abandoning his life as a farmer and becoming a samurai is more foolhardy than Enduro's, uh, but comes across more with a sense of worth and valor. Again, both of these narratives are not directly focusing in on the war and conflict, but instead they're they're focusing on what Mizuguchi was talking about that the commoner under these conditions continuing to live and eat. Does, does that make sense? Like, the these guys kind of being affected by the war, but still having to engage with it, but that continuing going on with their lives. See what I'm getting at, I, I guess? Um, it's interesting as well that in both of these stories, neither of these men are seeking to abandon their former lives as well entirely. They're, they're only seeking to improve from what they've had before. Um, not only for themselves, but for their wives and their families. You normally see in stories, a lot of stories like this, the protagonist, instead of, you know, doing what these guys are doing, where it's the betterment of not just them, but the others around them, they, they're kind of more like, fuck this, fuck my life, fuck my wife and my family, I deserve better, and I'm going to go out there and find it. I'm, I'm going out on my razor's edge adventure. Mizuguchi seems to have no interest in that, and, and that's kind of what makes this story more engaging and impactful. Um, both of these guys want to make good for themselves and their families. Uh, they want the glory and the success for themselves, and, and they want to be able to shower their family in gifts and extravagances that would normally be out of their reach, especially during the wartime, uh, which continues to obviously be the backdrop for both of these stories. Um, I'm just going to quickly jump back t- again to, to Lopate's essay, uh, where he kind of perfectly ties all this together. Um, this is like a direct quote from the essay. Are we to take it that the moral of the film is better stay at home, cultivate your garden, nose to the grindstone? No. Mizuguchi's viewpoint is not cautionary, but realistic. This is the way human beings are. Never satisfied. Everything changes. Life is suffering. No one can avoid one's fate. Boom. I, I think he fucking nails it. Like, not only does that kind of completely tie into what Mizuguchi was saying that he wanted the film to set out to be. It essentially nails the thematic arc of the film as well. And after doing this little bit of research and kind of reading up on Mizuguchi and in particular Ugetsu, this kind of re- like having this kind of reading on the film really made me uh, enjoy it a whole lot more on reflection than I did when I was necessarily sitting and watching it the first time. Um, I really fucking dug this film. Uh, it, like I said, it, it's that upon reflection, the, the sitting down and watching and thinking about it and researching, kind of letting it, it, its themes kind of develop over you. It's not just simply what I said in the beginning where you're like, oh, there's going to be a moral tale. It's going to be that whole, don't abandon your family. Like as Lopate points out, like it's nose to the grindstone. You should have ne- never left home. Like, no, it's, it's, it's not that there's so much more going on with this. Um, there are a couple of other uh, themes I've sort of found in my research as well. Obviously, uh, you know, obviously the, the anti-war themes as well. Um, then uh, th- there was one uh, British film critic, uh, Tony Raines, uh, said that the, the film is a presentation of the vanity of man, uh, neglecting his family. It's a critique of historic men in feudal Jap- Japanese culture. Um, yeah. And the interesting one that I thought, though, was um, it's this Professor Robin Wood. Argue- I'm just going to read this kind of verbatim here, because I don't want to butcher this. Uh, Professor Robin Wood argues that the film's depiction of the main ghost character evolves from a mere demon uh, from the short story The Lust of the White Serpent into a more humane and tragic Lady Wakasa, and this makes the story more complex. Uh, Wood Wood further opines that the combination of the story with The House of the Thicket, which is basically the short story of a man who has been off on travels and comes home to find the ghost of his wife. It's, it's sort of the, the, the end of the film is what uh, the house in the thicket is, is taken from. Um, combining uh, the male protagonist and each tale into one character, Genjuro, uh, also connects the demon character and the ghost wife. Both Lady Wakasa and Miyagi are killed by a male-dominated society, and both are wronged by Genjuro. Wood believes Ugetsu can be considered a feminist film for its exploration of a negative impact on a, of a patriarchy. I found that interesting. Um, I, I don't know if it's necessarily what Mizuguchi was setting out to do, and it's not necessarily how I read the film, 
but again, I'm a cis white male in his in his late thirties, um, so I have no real context for what is, could be considered something against the patriarchy or not. But like I said, I just found that one super interesting. That it's an interesting take on the film. Um, but yeah, like I said, first time viewing for me on both Ugetsu and any Mizuguchi film. And as I keep reiterating, the more this one sits with me, the more I've been enjoying it, the more I've been really appreciating the craft behind it, the story it's telling, the deep, th- the deep themes it's delving into. I dig it. I, I really do dig it and would highly recommend checking it out. Uh, if for nothing else, it is really a, a kind of focal point of classic Japanese cinema and uh, not just Japanese cinema, but like a focal point of what, what would then go on to influence a whole bunch of people moving forward. Uh, one of which in particular is Martin Scorsese, uh, which leads me to um, a new segment I want to actually premiere on this episode. Uh, we're not going to have a Claire hasn't... Uh, what's that movie about this week? Because unfortunately, Claire's really under the weather with, a, uh, with the flu at the moment. So I didn't want to actually get her to have to come and sit in front of a mic all nasally and stuffed up and try and explain what Ugetsu might be about. So instead, I'm gonna, we're going to premiere a brand new segment here on this episode uh, called What Did Marty Think About This Film? So we're going to dive in uh, whenever I can and find out uh, if Martin Scorsese has actually ever talked about this film or recommended a film. I want to sort of see what Marty thought about the film. Uh, Why why I'm kind of thinking with this one is because he uh, helped with the restoration of this film, actually. Um, He was a consultant and kind of uh, led uh, the restoration for this one that is kind of credited with and in the opening of the Criterion edition. So... Uh, let's see what Mr. Martin Scorsese thought of Ugetsu. I re- this is the time as well I really wish I could do a like, killer Martin Scorsese impersonation, but it ain't going to happen. Uh, instead, here we go. Mizuguchi is one of the greatest masters who ever worked in the medium of film. He's right up there with Renoir, Murnau, and Ford. And after the war, he made three pictures, The Life of Oharu, Ugetsu, and Sancho the Bailiff, that stand at the summit of cinema. All of his artistry is channeled into the most extraordinary simplicity. You're face-to-face with something mysterious, tragically inevitable, and then, in the end, peacefully removed. I love all three of these pictures, and many other Mizuguchi films as well, including Princess Yang Kuei-Fei, The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum, and Miss Oyu, to name only a few. But Ugetsuku has the most powerful effect on me. There are moments in the picture, famous ones, that I've seen again and again, and that have al- that always take my breath away. The boat slowly materializing from out of the mist and coming towards us, Genjuro collapsing on the grass in ecstasy and being smothered by Lady Wakasa, the final crane up from the sun-making offering at his mother's grave in the fields beyond. Just to think of these moments now fills me with awe and wonder. Thanks, Marty. All right, so I guess, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia about the film? Uh, So the film was nominated for an Academy Award in 1956 for Best Costume Design, Black and White. Uh, It was also named the Best Film of the Year by Carhe du Cinema, and it won the Passanetti Award and the Silver Lion at the 1953 Venice Film Festival, Uh, one of those uh, smack bang in the middle of him winning prizes three years in a row. Um, not like it's interesting as well that it won the Silver Lion. Uh, usually, obviously, the top prize at the Venice Film Festival is the Gold Lion, uh, but the Gold Lion was not awarded at the 1953 Venice Film Festival because the jury did not think any film deserved it, which I think is pretty fucking wild. But all right, um, the original title uh, Ugetsu Monogatari uh, roughly translates to Tales of the Moon and Rain. Uh, the stories of Akanari Uday were not, on, were not only literary sources that the movie screenwriters drew upon, but they were also inspired by the comic story How We Got the Legion of Honor by Guy Lu Maupassant. Uh, I think I said that way better at the beginning of the episode, but who knows. Uh, for the subplot involving Tobei's fanatical desire to become a samurai. 
Uh, I think I already mentioned this. Uh, the conclusion of the Tobey Ohama uh, subplot was quite different in the original script uh, from its resolution in the finished film in that the original draft, after meeting his wife Ohama by chance in the brothel, Tobey does not renounce his ambition and continue and instead continues his military career, leaving Ohama behind. Uh, although the studio had given director Mizuguchi full artistic freedom for this production, the pessimistic nature of the ending was too much for the studio executives, who pressured him heavily to change the script to include a more upbeat ending, and he eventually complied. Uh, the f- this is uh, also one of the ten favorite films of Soviet director Andrei Tarkovsky. Uh, in the 2012 Sight and Sound poll, the film ranked 50th. It'll be real interesting uh, come November to see if it's still in the mix. Very excited to see what that new list is going to be. The film is currently ranked number 217 on Letterboxd Top 250 Narrative Films. Uh, It's included in the 1001 Movies to See Before You Die. Uh, The film is also included in Roger Ebert's Great Movies list, uh, where he called it one of the greatest of all films, and said that at the end of Ugetsu, where we have seen a fable, we also feel curiously as if we have witnessed true lives and fates. Uh, as well, uh, Pauline Kael in her book, uh, 5001 Nights at the Movies, uh, wrote that she found it subtle, violent, yet magical, and termed Ugetsu as one of the most amazing of the Japanese movies that played in American art house cinemas. Uh, yeah. So, there we go. That is Ugetsu. Um, in terms of a tagline, um, all I could really come up with this one was, uh... Better the devil you know. Kind of there. The, the foreshadowing, you got the otherworldliness, the, 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 the seeking the better life. I don't know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to whittle something out of that. But that's what we've got. If we think of any, if I, if I come up with any more, I'll uh, slap them onto the Instagram account and stuff there and we'll, we'll kind of see if I've got any, anything better than that. But uh, please let me know if you've got any of your own. Uh, otherwise, that's going to wrap us up for this week's episode looking at Mizuguchi's 1953 film Ugetsu, uh, a film that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, we're going to be back in a fortnight's time uh, delving in with a double episode, actually. Um, kind of going to try and tackle over two episodes. The film's in the Rebel Samurai 60s Swordplay Classics box set. Uh, so we're going to be kicking things off with Samurai Rebellion from 1967. Uh, a film that I'm very much looking forward to because it's from uh, Masaki Kobayashi, who I'm a huge fan of. As And then we're going to be following that one up with... Uh, Hideo Gosha's Sword of the Beast. And then uh, the week after, we'll do Samurai Spy and Kill. But, uh, so tune in for those uh, upcoming episodes. Otherwise, as usual, we've got the Patreon kicking over there. Uh, bonus episodes, looking at specific films, uh, commentaries, a whole bunch of little fun stuff. There's a really fun little community going on over there. Uh, so, as usual, all of that stuff is in the episode description, patreon.com slash thecriterionquest. All the Instagram, the letterbox, the Twitter, all that info is in the episode description. You can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com. I love hearing from all of you guys. It's really appreciated, um, especially when I'm flying solo on some of these episodes for the time being. But again, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you watched and enjoyed Ugetsu as much as I did. And uh, we'll see you again in a fortnight's time for some more samurai fun. Uh, But for this week's episode, I'm Chris. I'll see you next time.